that last Wednesday night. Uh, but if you notice the slide, it's a little bit different than what you saw before and what you're seeing posted around the building. Uh, Robert Herkovec canceled his appearance with us. <coughs> And so he's not going to be there. And so if you have a reservation and you want to cancel that, we will send your money back to you happily. What we're working on, we're going to work with the Oak Ridge boys and ask them to deliver a longer performance that night. And so it's going to be a great evening. But if you haven't made a reservation there and want to do that, you can go to our website or talk to me and we'll get you fixed up. But that is going to be a great evening. You can go on the men's outing to Decatur. And they just swing back through Florence and make one big old day of it. So it's going to be a good day. I want to go back, and some of you weren't around yet. Many of us were. But back to the 1970s. In fact, you see a picture uh, of a mug that was presented to me when I was very young. But it was the joy bus days. We were in southern Illinois at that point in time. And uh, my dad preached in a congregation there. And that church decided we're going to get into the bus ministry. And so we started with two joy buses. And I really hated it. I could not find a, a more, you know, a, a nice picture of a joy bus. But I found one that was parked in the weeds. And that's kind of how they were painted. And we started with two and then we ended up with four and I always rode bus two. Had a great time doing that. Standard crew, it had a driver, had a captain who would go to the doors and get the kids. It had a, a team leader who would you know, lead some singing and engage the kids that are riding the bus in some teaching while they're coming to church. It had kind of a secretary slash order keeper on the bus and it was a great ministry. It was a taxing ministry because it required a lot of people to make it go. And church during that time, it was exciting. I can remember Sunday morning, you would, as a kid, you'd come out of Bible class and you didn't linger in the hall. You raced to the auditorium because it wasn't a matter of getting, you know, you, you might not get a seat if you didn't get in there in a hurry because it was crowded. And for a kid, that's exciting. And church was a little weird. I remember we, would, we showed up at church one day and all of a sudden, one of the school bullies was coming to church with us. It was a little disconcerting because you expect to see your bully at school, but you don't expect to see him at church. And one of the joy buses is picking this guy up, and you're thinking, well, I hope he doesn't get mad at us here, you know, at church. So it was a little weird. And then Sunday evening Bible hour, the kids would all go off to a room and uh, there were puppet shows and there were singing and there was Bible lessons. And I mean, we were packed in there shoulder to shoulder and the, the, some of the kids hadn't bathed and so the room didn't always smell great, but, but it was exciting. And during this time, I became a Christian. And that was like joining the team. That was like being able to dive into the ministry because now I'm a Christian and so uh, I could get on that bus and I could lead some of the singing and teach some of the lessons and I felt like I was part of the team. And so it was challenging. You know, sometimes the bathrooms would be a bigger mess than usual. Sometimes things got broken. Sometimes it was inconvenient. It was the best of times. But then something happened. One of our shepherds, he sold his CPA practice and he sold it so that he could move down to Florence, Alabama and enroll in that, what was then International Bible College. He wanted to do mission work. And so he was the guy, he was one of the people who had a lot of the drive and the, the, the energy behind the bus program. So no, he's gone. And then something else happened. Some people got tired. Some people got frustrated. Some people got burned out. And so when we moved away from there in late 1978, the bus program was in decline. And instead of 
you know, finding revival and capitalizing on what was still a great opportunity, eventually it kind of fizzled out. And now today, in an economically depressed town, that congregation is a shell of what it once was. And the sad thing about it is there are still a lot of people in that town that need to know about Jesus. I want us to dream a little bit tonight. I want us to spend some time dreaming about getting back to the place where the Savannah congregation could be experiencing this ongoing season, even a culture of growth. And while I started us with looking back on some experiences that I've had, I want to think in terms of, I don't want to dream tonight by looking back. I want to dream by looking forward. I want to dream by looking at what could be, what could happen. And, you know, from my perspective, and my perspective is this, I'm, I know this place a little. I'm beginning to love this congregation, this church family a lot. And so from my perspective, I've heard some really intriguing stories of what you might call glory days here at Savannah. And I've heard people talk about a longing to get back to a time where things are just really moving forward. And so I want to begin with some questions tonight. If this church wants to experience days like those again where growth is the norm, what would it take to get there? And that brings other questions to mind. Has this congregation grown as large as it really needs to be? How big is big enough? And is there, a, is there even a problem with asking that question? There's a non-denominational, multi-campus church in South Carolina... And their stated goal is to have 100,000 members in the state of South Carolina. Now, setting doctrine aside for just a moment, if that church were to reach their stated goal of 100,000 members in a state of 4.7 million people, is that church big enough at 100,000? I'd have to say it's not. Now, how many people here in Hardin County still need Jesus? But think about it, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be exhilarating to be in an environment where, hey, we know that if we take too much time getting in here on a Sunday morning, I might not get my normal seat. And I don't want to be late because I might end up sitting on the back wall in a chair because there aren't enough pews for everybody to sit in. And wouldn't it be amazing if my normal worship experience involved the idea that I'm going to, I'm going to sit by different people just about every week because I, I can't hardly get a seat by the same people that I always sit by. You know, imagine the dynamic of having people in worship who aren't familiar with the Savannah Church's culture, even Church of Christ culture in general. And do those kind of thoughts, do they get you excited? Or do they make you apprehensive? Or is it tempting to feel like, well, maybe the church has kind of arrived and maybe we ought to be able to level off and maybe we ought to be able to coast for a while, burn less fuel, and at least for a time. Because that would be a lot less stressful. Or is there sometimes a feeling of guilt because maybe I'm not as willing as I ought to be to embrace the discomfort that associate or that is associated with a season or a culture of growth? See, a growth culture, uh, it creates what some people would call problems. I prefer to think in terms of opportunities. When you start growing, one thing that's going to come up, somebody's going to say, well, we need more facilities and, and sooner might be better than later. And Because after all, when you start thinking about people coming together to the worship, if it's a sporting event, 
We don't mind being oversold on the venue. We'll crowd in there and get as crowded as we need to be. But when it comes to most things like church, at about 80%, 80% capacity, we start feeling kind of crowded. And we're probably not going to grow beyond that. Well, this church is blessed because the facility is already in place. That's been done. One thing that happens when we start growing... Church growth doesn't immediately translate into financial growth. And so we may start growing, we may start converting, we may have a lot of new people around, but financially we may not immediately have a lot of additional resources because new Christians often have to be, they have to be trained in the area of stewardship. We might need more staff. The staff that's on staff, the, the, the existing staff, they may be spread more thin. They may not be as available when the church starts growing. Shepherding becomes more difficult. We may need more shepherds. And sometimes when we need more shepherds, there's a concern. Does it change the dynamic of the leadership? We've got assimilation challenges. How do we help the new people fit in? How do we help them find their place? How do we help young Christians grow? And see, if a growth culture becomes the norm, that's when Satan is going to begin to challenge us more. Because, see, Satan doesn't have to do much. If we decide a church is already dead, he's going to leave that church alone. But we start growing, we start emphasizing that, and he's going to get involved trying to, trying to make that stop. My purpose tonight is to get us longing for those kind of opportunities. That's why I said I wanted us to dream a little bit because my other perspective as a traveling preacher, I visit a lot of places where when I walk in, you walk in and, and, and folks at the church, they kind of want to tell you what's on their mind. And so sometimes there's a lot of hand-wringing and some of it is literal, some of it's virtual, but the people in some of these churches, they'll say things like, you know, what are we going to do? We're dwindling. Our numbers are down. We have no young people left. The, the young people that we had, they, they've moved off, and now when you don't have young people, you get to a place it's hard to attract young people. We don't know what we're going to do. We lost several key families when we had the fight of 1982, and we've never really recovered from the big fight that we had. And, you know, we, we really can't afford a preacher right now. And, you know, it's just this downhill, depressing, sad situation. We need to be growing. And the question becomes, how do we begin to grow again? In the kind of way that we dream about. And once we're growing, how do we navigate that season? And how do we uh, ensure that a season of growth becomes a culture of growth? And how do we not lose focus through the pains that come with growth? And how do we avoid bus ministry type burnout? If you would, and I know it's taken us a time to get to Scripture, but turn with me, if you would, to Revelation, the second chapter. And as I read these familiar words, I want you to ask yourself, if you're a member of the church in Ephesus, and you arrive and, and hey, there's a letter from John, there's, there's this revelation, and there's actually a word to our church that's in here, how would you react if this was read to you about you? In Revelation 2, church at Ephesus, beginning in verse 2, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they're not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you that you've left your first love. 
Therefore remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nickelodeons which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, if that's read, and and that's to you and about you, would there be outrage? And I wonder, looking back, if maybe there was some, because this church is busy, and this church is active, and they haven't even gotten tired yet, you know, outrage because are we not doing enough? And maybe there was, would there be denial? Left your first love, what are you talking about? No way, we're, we're still as active as a church can be. How in the world could you say about us that we've left our first love? Please understand... I'm in no way suggesting that Savannah, this congregation, this church family is here in Revelation 2. But make no mistake, the value for us in seeing a church called out this way in Scripture is that for us the radar ought to go up and we ought to be very on guard to the idea that, hey, we could be busy and we could be active and we could be doing all the right things, but something could still be missing. And so when he talks about returning to your first love, what's he talking about here? It's, it's one of those that's been wide open to speculation because he doesn't really exactly say. And maybe it's one of those messages where the people in Ephesus knew, you know, it may have reference to Jesus and or His church. Some scholars hold that it may have been that the Ephesians had developed such a debating spirit among themselves within the church that it had wearied them and robbed them of, of their focus. We talked recently about how internal strife stifles outreach. Maybe that's going on with them. Perhaps they've maintained doctrinal accuracy at the expense of having a wearied soul. A lack of love can do that to us. Another possibility, maybe they've just lost their original fervor in some way. That can play out as, I'm going through the ritual of worship service without the appropriate enthusiasm and reverence and devotion. That can play out in going through the motions but having forgotten about purpose. In other words, I'm doing, but my love for the Lord or for my brethren or for the lost or maybe all three has somehow waned. Again, we get to speculate because the Bible doesn't exactly say, but the message is very plain. You've fallen, you have fallen from where you were, and so change your mind about this and then allow your change of mind to change your conduct. Do the first works. Works motivated by love. Works done with your original enthusiasm. When we think about being motivated by love, see, if we forget the main thing, it will not matter what we build, it will not matter how many ministries we're involved in. If, if love isn't there for the Lord and for each other and for the lost, if love's not at the base of all of that, it doesn't matter what we do. But see, when we recapture that or when we grow that, when we fan that into flame, growth of the church is the byproduct. It's the result. We don't grow so that we can say we grew. We don't grow so that we can say, hey, we're now the largest church in the city of Savannah. Growth is what occurs when we love. Loving enough to honor and obey God. 
love and obey God enough to work through His plan as laid out in Scriptures. Love each other enough to make sure that we're helping each other go to heaven. Love the lost enough to, to make sure that if it's up to us, if there's anything we can do, we don't want them to miss heaven. Here's the one thing to walk out of here with tonight, and I like as often as possible to have a thought that maybe is easy to remember. But when it comes to growth, the idea is this. If we do not grow, someone will not know. That's a very simple little rhyme, but there's a lot of truth in that. See, we may, be, we may see ourselves as being kind of in a holding pattern, but the cycle of life is never in a holding pattern. Someone will be lost... They could have been saved had we continued to focus on the main thing. And someone says, yeah, yeah, right. But, but hey, it's true. If we don't embrace our mission, people that could have been saved may well be lost. There are people who need Jesus all around us. And all of us have a responsibility. And so in our remaining time tonight, and we could probably preach each of these as a separate lesson. We're not going to try to do that. But, but we want to make some suggestions for us to keep us dreaming about growth. Some things that may help us grow in that direction. Number one, we need to remember if we're going to start thinking about growth, we need to place the vision for growth in God's hands. In other words... The prayer that, that we talked about this morning, that, that we've talked about already tonight, that was mentioned in our prayer that was led, we need to lean on God and we need to seek His direction because He can bless us in ways that we don't even comprehend. I love what happened in Nehemiah. In his book, Visioneering, Andy Stanley said, success has a way of weaning us off of our dependence on God. And we understand how that works in church. We understand how that works in sports. When things go really well, I might forget about the basics. Uh, sometimes when things go really well at church, I may forget about my, my dependence on God for the success. But there in Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah is about to ask to go back to Jerusalem. And so when the, when the king looks at him and says, well, what's on your mind? What do you want? Chapter 2, the second part of verse 4 says, Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Before I asked the king, my first thing is, I'm praying. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3, because I think it encapsulates the reason why we cannot afford not to have God's vision or the, the idea of we want to grow, but we want God to be involved. Ephesians chapter 3, a couple of verses there, beginning in verse 20, the Bible says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. That's a big statement about God. To all that I can ask... He can bless me far more abundantly beyond anything I can ask. We can do some major, major asking. And, and Paul's writing there, God can bless us beyond what we're able to ask or even to think, even to imagine. So the vision for growth has to be placed in God's hands because He can bless it beyond anything we're even able to think about. So at an individual level... 
how much of my prayer life is devoted to praying that God will do something great in this church? And do I pray that somehow, some way, He'll use me in that process? And do I pray about opportunities for sharing, for reaching out? In other words, do I pray about individual souls who might need to be right with God? Do, do I pray that the church won't allow tradition to prevent it from embracing the most effective methods for growing biblically? Number two tonight, as we dream about growth, we need to remember to support our shepherds. Because see, being supportive of our leaders, it positions them to focus on progress rather than to focus on problems. And that's true in any kind of organization. And you may see that play out at work all the time. Now the Scripture here, Hebrews 13 verse 17, we're familiar with that. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Down at school... We talk about our goal of being as a school, we want to be in the middle of Scripture, understanding that there's a ditch on each side, and we understand that there's a lot of rock throwing that goes on from time to time, across ditch to ditch. And we don't want to get caught up in that, because if we get caught up in, in, in what's going on in the ditches, then it keeps us, it prevents us from moving forward, and there are too many churches that need good preachers to, for us to get caught up in something that would prevent us from training the next preacher that needs to be trained. You understand how this works at work. Day is new, day has arrived, and, and you've got a plan. You've got a to-do list. You've got some things you want to accomplish today. And these are things on your list that if you can accomplish these things, they're actually going to move everybody forward in a great way. And so you get to work, and all of a sudden you're not looking at your list anymore because you've become a firefighter. I really, at one point, I wanted to go get a fireman's helmet and I wanted to hang it on my wall in my office so that when things started going wrong, I could just put my helmet on and maybe get people to stop for a minute. You've had it happen. You've got a plan and at the end of the day, none of your plan has happened because you spent your whole day dealing with this person or that person or this emergency or that thing. And all I'm saying is this, for us as a church family the better we are at supporting our shepherds. The more time they can spend focusing on progress and moving forward rather than solving problems for us. God really didn't intend shepherding to be the equivalent to a complaint department. And now that I'm at an age where some of my friends, close friends, are becoming elders... I'll let them be elders for a little while and then I'll kind of ask them how it's going. And almost without fail, they will tell me they could not believe how many complaints they have to listen to. We, again, could do a whole lesson here and we're not. But see, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul spends a lot of time talking about what a proper Christian walk looks like. And one of the ways we position our leaders for success is to walk and to live like God has instructed us to. And the better a job we do living the way we're supposed to live, that allows them to focus on what it's going to help, you know, the things that are going to help the church grow. Number three, as we dream and ask the question, what if we could grow again right now? We need to remember the power of a positive voice. 
And we've talked about this a little bit in the past. We've actually talked about Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Core of the congregation, this is such an important message because the, 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 the positive nature of the core will affect everybody in the church. We need to do everything we can to be positive, even when we want to say something negative. And, and you understand how this works. Think about life at home, especially if you're married. Is life at home better when you stifle that first in, impulse to be negative and you just kind of stifle that and don't say anything? Isn't it better at home when you somehow don't say that negative thing? For almost all of us, it's better when we don't say it. And my, my, my point is, I think that works in church family also. And see, the thing is, when growth occurs and as a season of growth starts to become a, a, the norm and, and the challenges begin to occur, it may take a lot of self-discipline every day not to speak negatively because growth brings challenges and, and, and it's going to take money and it's going to take time and it may be you know not quite as comfortable as we make progress and there may be some tension and... It takes self-discipline to continue to speak in a positive way. Number four, we need to remember that rest is important, but that kingdom retirement really isn't biblical. And that kind of gets us back to when several weeks ago we talked a little bit about burnout and how we do need to rest. We don't want to be burned out. That's what happened to the bus ministry. Kind of grinded the life out of people. But Matthew 14, we were there this morning and we were talking about the busy life of Jesus and he gets the word about John the Baptist being dead and so Jesus wants to pray. People don't let him. He, he, he heals the sick. He feeds all those people. And then before he even dismissed the crowd, Matthew 14 verse 22 says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. He sent them on. They needed to rest. Every one of us needs rest. And one of the things I think that happened with the bus ministry, there were never enough backup players. People in the game never seemed to be able to come out and rest and recover. The Lord knows we need rest. He created us to need to be able to rest, but He never established a spiritual retirement. He never put that idea into Scripture. A friend of mine who has an outreach position with a congregation. He's the minister of outreach in this rather large church. And we were talking one day a couple of years ago and he said, in the congregation where I serve, he says, one of the greatest challenges I face are when, when folks have the ability and the blessing of being able to retire from work. In so many cases, they kind of retire from church work also. And he says, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to go to them and I'm trying to get them to see that if, they're still, if they've still got health and they've still got energy, they now have the opportunity to serve in the kingdom like they never have before. And he says, I'm just challenged though because sometimes they don't see it. If you're blessed to not have to get up and go to work every day, Please see that for the kingdom opportunity that it is. And I know many of you do. I know many of you are very involved in a lot of ministries. And that's excellent. 
see, the folks that have retired from secular work, and you, you've got wisdom, you've got experience, you've got influence that, that, that the church desperately needs. And if we're going to grow, your wisdom and your experience and your influence is going to be crucial. You think about new Christians. Somebody needs to help new Christians grow up. And that may be your gift. You may be the one that has the time to sit down with them and maybe teach and mentor and help bring them along. The list of advantages is huge if we'll just look at it with an optimistic eye. Number five tonight, remember that what we're really talking about is embracing His purpose for our being here. In other words, every one of us, we should have an expectation that this church is going to grow because that's what God wants. And anything less is to have an expectation that's actually too low. And each of us ought to understand that my role will be different than your role, and, but each of us should think in terms of, I've got a role in this, I have a place in this, there are things that I can do that will make a difference. You see, one of the things that will stunt the growth of a congregation is when some of us begin to incorrectly think that the church is here to fulfill our purposes rather than the idea that we're here to be the arms and the legs in sharing God's eternal plan. Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 3 again, earlier in the chapter, he talks about purpose and he talks about mission. Early in the chapter in verse 6, he, he talks about the idea that the good news is that Gentiles are fellow heirs. And then in verse 8, he talks about the idea that I have the, the, the blessing of preaching the unfathomable riches of Christ. I'm preaching this to the Gentiles. And so then when you get down to verse 10, the Bible says that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. See, God had a plan all along. And Paul says, I have a purpose. There's a, there's a role for me in, in carrying this out. And there's a role for all of us. It was Paul who said to the Christians at Corinth, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And as you think about his life, and as you think about everything that went on after Jesus got his attention on that road to Damascus, the purpose of his life changed dramatically. And that ought to be the norm. If we're a Christian, the purpose of our life, it ought to be different than it was when we weren't a Christian. And so when I go to the mirror, can I say that I've embraced... God's purpose. My reason for being here is the idea that I'm a child of God and I'm to reflect Christ in everything I do. The personalized response is, what vital role does God want me to play in helping this church grow? And how can I make sure that my life is, is not so much about me, but rather now about Him? See, I believe the answer comes to us in that Revelation text that we looked at. That message to the Ephesians, love's got to be present. And that brings us to number six. Finally, as we dream about growing now, the idea of always loving more. 
Love's one of those things we can never fully... I mean, there's always room to love a little bit more, to love the Lord more, to love His church more, to love each other more, to love the lost more, to, to love our purpose more. And see, when everything we do is motivated by love, then our actions will rarely ever be selfish. You see, that's what gets me into trouble. When I start doing things selfishly, that's when I get in trouble. And when we operate from a place of selflessness, good things are going to happen. And so it is about our purpose. If we do not grow, someone here in Savannah will not know. And more personalized, if I do not grow, someone will not know. And yes, I get it. You may be thinking it. It's okay to say it out loud. No matter what we do, there are going to be some people who are lost. In fact, in Matthew 7, Jesus says that a lot of people are going to miss it. But think about that one soul. That one soul that ends up being lost, that would have been saved had we embraced the vision to go. The, 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 one, the one soul that, that we could have reached with the Word had we embraced this idea that we need to grow right now. I love what our founding vice president, Basil Overton, would say. And he'd say this from time to time, and he'd say it to students, and then when they finally understood what he meant, everybody could always remember it. But he said, I love what I'm doing because I really don't know what I'm doing. And all he meant by that was, I'm training up some preachers, and I'm doing God's work, and only God knows what good is going to come from that. It's about fulfilling our purpose, always being motivated by love, love for Him, love for each other, love for the lost. The reason Paul was able to connect with the Gentiles, even when the Jews, even maybe some of the Jews, but the reason he could connect is because he was acutely aware that his purpose really had nothing to do with him. Allow me to leave you with this tonight. How well do you know the following organizations? And I'll list these off. Jack Tinker and Partners, Doyle Dane and Bernbach, BBDO, Foot Conan Belding, and J. Walter Thompson. Those are companies, unless you're in a very specific niche of life, you probably those probably aren't real familiar to you. But you're going to know some of the work they did. They're advertising agencies. And see, advertising agencies, they want to make a name in the niche, in the industry, and they want to beat up on each other. But they really don't care if you as a consumer or I as a consumer, they don't care if we ever know their name. They want you to know the work that they've done. Plot, plot, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is. That's Jack Tinker and Partners, 1976. We try harder. You may remember that from Avis in 1962. That's Doyle Dane and Bernbach. Mm-mm, good. That's Campbell's Soup, 1935, BBDO. When you care enough to send the very best, that's Hallmark, 1939, that's, or 1934, that's Foot Conan Belding. And then finally, J. Walter Thompson gave a snap, crackle, pop, Rice Krispies in 1928. And see, I think as the church, we can learn a lot from these companies. Because what they do for their clients, we kind of exist to do for Christ. We're sort of an advertising agency. We, we promote God's purposes in every area of our lives. And when we do that, the church grows. We can only do that, though, if we can push, push the personal aspirations to the side, the agendas aside, 
and focus on God's intent for His church. I don't know about you, and and I hope maybe this has been useful tonight, but I've got every reason to believe that this church is well positioned to grow again right now. It's okay to remember the glory days, but I always hope that will allow all of us to look ahead at what can be in the future. So let me challenge you to pray. Put the vision in God's hands. Let me challenge you, number two, to find a way to encourage a shepherd this week. A card, a note, a hug, whatever you do, if you take the time to encourage a shepherd, he'll probably never forget it. Number three, speak a positive word when you're tempted to say something negative. Try that at home and try it at church. It'll help you both places. Number four, rest when you need to rest, but know that your involvement in the church is crucial. Number five, spend some devotional time being reminded of of purpose. Allow God to speak to you through His Word about His purpose and then look for ways that you can better embrace His purpose in your life. And then finally, number six, love. Our actions should always reflect our love for the Lord, for each other, and for those people who still need Jesus. Tonight we're going to sing Trust and Obey. And if there's something amiss in your life and you need this church praying for you, you have that opportunity tonight. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian and you're ready to begin your walk with God. If you obey the gospel tonight, this church grows. But we don't do that so that we can say we've grown. We need you to obey the gospel so that you can be a part of the family, so that you can be in heaven one day. If you're ready to make that decision tonight, let that be known while we stand and while we sing.